0: not have the pleasure of yet meeting my name is Owen I get to serve as one of the pastors here and today we have a special guest preacher that I'd like to introduce to you Pastor Will Chang is the founding and senior pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Orange County which is the PCA Church in Southern California Uh, Pastor Will worked in finance uh, on Wall Street for seven years before entering full-time ministry. He received his uh, BA in finance from the University of Florida, and then he received his Master's of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary. He is an ordained pastor in the PCA, and he currently serves as the moderator of the Korean Southwest Presbytery in Orange County. He is married to Kathy, and they have two children together. Pastor Will is a dear friend of mine, and I'm a big fan of his. I really do believe that God is going to use Pastor Will and New Life Press to do amazing things for the kingdom of God and for the advance of the gospel. And as you're going to see in just a moment, Pastor Will is a phenomenal preacher, and he's going to be preaching in series for us, meaning he's going to preach uh, today, and he's going to show us how Jesus is found in the Old Testament, and in particular, how Christ is found in the book of Esther. So Christ Central, will you help me welcome Pastor Will to our pulpit?
1: morning, CCPC. Uh, I'm gl- glad to be here, thankful for the opportunity to be able to uh, preach God's word. But you know, after the wonderful message that Director Sujin gave, I feel like I could just close in prayer, We'd be filled and blessed, and we could all be sent home at an earlier service. But uh, they called me to preach God's word, so I'll try my best to do that. I uh, want to thank Pastor Owen, the session, the diaconate, um, the staff, and the members. Uh, CCPC is uh, a church that I don't just... Uh, thank God for, but also a church that I admire uh, because of the gospel ministry and the work that God is using over here. Uh, my church in Orange County and CCPC are partners in many ways through different parachurch organizations, through our denomination, the PCA, and I'm so thankful for this gospel partnership that could happen from coast to coast. And with that said, uh, before I would read our passage here from Esther chapter 6... want to set this up because it's always a challenge to jump into a narrative or a story like the book of Esther and go straight to basically scene four of this story and without any context. So I just want to give a brief context, read a couple of verses, and then we'll look at what the Word of God has to say to us today. But the book of Esther is unique and one of a kind, and up until this point in chapter 6, what we essentially have is this dynamic between two of the key figures Haman and Mordecai. Haman by the commentators is known as this court official in the Persian court who wants dignity, he wants honor, he wants to be recognized, he wants to be celebrated, he wants in some sense a deep honor publicly. And he's looking for it from the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus, but in this chapter 6 what happens essentially is that the king finds out that this one guy, Mordecai, has essentially saved his life. And back then, if you save the king's life, you automatically get rewarded. And so the king wants to honor not Haman, but Mordecai. And when Haman finds out, there's a counseling context. He's completely destroyed. He's utterly devastated. He's lost of a sense of self. And we look at how the gospel can speak into These complex dynamics. And so with that said, I'm going to be preaching from the entire book of, or entire chapter of Esther 6, but I'm just going to read for us verses 7 to 9. And so this is Esther chapter 6. Let me read these verses for us, verses 7 to 9, and we'll get right into it. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And this is God's word for us today. One of the interesting things about the book of Esther is that the name of God is nowhere in the entire book. In fact, there is nothing religious about the book. There is nothing about prayer, nothing about praising. There's no Bible study. There's no session meeting. There's no worship service. And I think the author intentionally does this because perhaps more than any other book, the book of Esther speaks into a completely secular culture and society. And this wonderful character in the person of Esther shows how can somebody who has a commitment to the gospel live in a relativistic, pluralistic society in a world that doesn't know who God is? And that book is going to show us very profoundly in the character of Esther. In fact, did you know that Esther's Babylonian name is Star? And that's because, poetically speaking, she is the star of the story. She is the one who's a rising star and whom God uses to be faithful to his covenant promises and to save Israel. Now, Esther, which we won't get much into in this sixth chapter, is actually the rising star of someone who is marginalized. She's oppressed. She represents, in our day and age, the Me Too movement. She's brought into the palace as a commodity, as an object. She's paraded among the kings and his officials to be chosen as the next queen. She's objectified. She's demeaned. She's in some sense, abused. She's sexually assaulted. She's a person who has been completely devastated, and yet she's a rising star in God's kingdom. That's the book of Esther. That's the hero of the story. But in our passage today, friends, we're going to look at Haman, who the commentators call Haman the horrible, and her cousin Mordecai. And the passage is interesting. It's ironic. It's satirical. It's comical. There's A complete reversal of people's stories and life fortunes. And what I want to focus on here today is this reversal of stories in this sort of trajectory of going from shame to honor and honor to shame. So three things very quickly about what the Bible in this passage, in this chapter, shows us about this reversal of going from shame to honor. How we understand honor as being so essential to the fabric of our existence and humanity. First, we're just going to ask, what does the Bible say about honor? What is it? Especially in an Asian culture, an Asian church, they always say we're shame-based and honor-based. Well, what exactly is gospel-centered honor? And secondly, whether you're a believer or not, if you're skeptical and you have questions about Christianity or whether you've been growing up in the church for years, why is honor so needed to make life work? Why do you need honor? And I'm going to try to make a case for this. And then lastly... Where do you get it? How do you get honor that will make your life flourish, even between parent and child, between husband and wife, between coworker and boss, employee and employer? Honor can make your relationships flourish as long as it's centered upon the gospel of Jesus. So let's look at this really quickly. First, what is biblical honor? What is it? Well, we're given a clue in the passage because honor is all that. Haman, a royal court official in the kingdom of Persia, in the palace of King Ahasuerus, that's all he wants. He's chasing after honor. We know this from verse 6. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? This is Haman speaking. That's what he wants. He's thinking to himself. What is honor? Essentially, if you look at that word, there's a large overlap between honor and respect in the biblical term. But it's essentially to be valued is to be seen as precious, to be special, to be publicly recognized, to see something unique in what you've done and who you are, and to publicly recognize and tell the world how special and how unique and how publicly recognized you should be. That's what Haman wanted so desperately. He's using his whole life to chase after, in his heart of hearts, this desire to be honored. It's all about honor, and we see the dynamics of this in the passage today. The chapter, in fact, is all about honor. Now, this is sort of surface level, but in your Bibles, the subheadings oftentimes say the king that honors Mordecai. And in commentaries, one in particular says this section is about the man and the king who he delights to honor. The word honor is scattered throughout this chapter. It's there seven times verses three, six, seven, nine, and 11. It's peppered throughout these verses. In fact, chapter six is structured around this notion of honor, beginning with verse 1, verse 4, and then verse 10. Each section begins with a speech that discusses the notion of honor. So in verse 1, is how can we honor Mordecai? And then in verse 4, what should we do to honor Mordecai? And then in verse 10, the king commands Haman to honor Mordecai. So the passage is thoroughly saturated, and is talking about honor, and in fact, I would say this tells us that our world that we live in here today, you and I here, 21st century, living in Nova, our lives are also saturated by the notion of honor. Now, there are things that we know. We, we say things like, there's a dinner given in your honor. You know, when somebody walks, an older gentleman walks into the room, we stand up to show him honor. When a lady leaves a restaurant or the table, we stand up to show her honor. There are award ceremonies where we hear things like, Tonight, we honor and celebrate this person's accomplishments. This part of our culture, there's things such as honor roll in school. You had that bumper sticker back in the day say, My student is an honor student. My child isn't on the honor roll. I've an a friend years ago in college. She, her parents were so proud of her because she was graduating, graduating with her bachelor's degree, but the parents were so proud because they kept telling me. My daughter is graduating with honors. Even the fifth commandment, if you're going up in the church, it says, honor your father and mother. It penetrates the family. Honor is everywhere, friends. It saturates our culture. So what is it exactly? Biblically, there are a couple of words that give us a sense of honor. One of them is the same word for glory. It's a sense of weightiness. You know, when you honor someone, you give them Gravitas, there's a weightiness, there's a meaningfulness, there's a heaviness, it weighs on your shoulders, there's a significance, you're important, you have presence. In one sense, that's the most common word for honor, but in our chapter, the word honor is a different word. In our chapter, the word is actually the word translated as precious. So when you think about honor, you're thinking, what is precious? What is weighty? What is expensive? What is rare? So you know when somebody's important to you. In some ways, that's honor. Somebody who is important to you, you love, you recognize, you want their approval. In a room such as this with a couple of hundred, you know that one person that's in this room. And you're always aware of where that one person is because in some ways, that person has honor in your heart. This is why sometimes we say, even in the family dynamics... We feel disrespected by our spouse, or we feel disrespected by our children, or our children are ashamed of the parents. Those are all kinds of different shame and honor dynamics. It makes life work. This is why at work, when you're trying to move up the corporate ladder, and you're not recognized with your accomplishments and your achievements, your personal contributions to your work, you get angry. It's not just about being promoted, it's about being seen about being honored, about being respected, validated, shown that you are uniquely gifted, uniquely you, you are prized and you're a possession. You're expensive, you're rare. That's why it's the big difference between liking someone, which you can do to hundreds of people, and being able to honor someone which you can only really do for a handful of people. Precious and special in our passage to honor someone in this way essentially needs two things for Haman. He wants something unique and he wants it to be public. Unique and public. He wants honor, he wants something that's unique and public. He wants to wear the king's robes, ride his horse, wear his crown, be paraded in public. You know what the analogy is like? It's like we're going to Pastor Owen, I want to be unique and public at this church. You know, I want to sit in Pastor Owen's chair at his office. I want to go to his backyard. I want to ride and drive his car. I want to, I want to wear his shirt. <laughs> I want to feel what it's like to say to the church, I'm the only person who could have the same sort of life as Pastor Owen. I want to be honored and unique and public in that way. And friends, in our heart of hearts, you and I are like this. We want work to be recognized in the workforce. You want your boyfriend or spouse to share how much he loves you publicly on your birthday or Valentine's Day. This is what he's done for me. This is what he, how he appreciates me. We want award ceremonies for sports and academic achievements. We want honor in our accomplishments, something that's unique and public. And that's what the passage is talking about. But secondly, let me try to show you why you need this just by being human. Because some of you thinking, I don't need to be honored. I'm introverted. I work behind the scenes. I don't need to be. It sounds egotistical, self-concentrated, self-centric, self-absorbed. Why do we need to be honored? Well, let me try to make a case to say honor in itself is actually really good. It's that our sin is what corrupts our honor. Honor is something that's natural. In fact, it's something that's built into the fabric of our existence, made in the image of God, in our society and culture. In fact, God built you with honor. In Psalm chapter 8 verse 5, it says, "Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor," talking about the creation of mankind. It's a reference to creation before sin entered into the world, before sin corrupted everything. It said that God made mankind with honor. It's even a biblical hope and promise in Proverbs 21:21. 21, 21. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. It's integrated into our culture and our communities in which we live. This is true for both Christians and non-Christians. Honor is something that if you are built in the image of God, which all humans are, you are built within your being with a sense of honor because God has created you and you image forth the honor and the glory of God. Peter Berger, the social ethicist, some of you may be aware of him, has actually made this insight that said, in our Western culture, in Western society, our notions of honor have been shaped, have been influenced by medieval codes of chivalry, grounded in feudalism. In other words, feudalism, there's a class system, there's royalty, there's landowners, there's the working class. And society has placed a value in which class that you live in, and Berger is saying, our culture here in Western society has significant grounding from this feudalistic idea. It's similar to today. There's nobility in England. There's military. There are traditional professions that we always honor a little bit more if you're honest with yourselves. You, you honor traditions and professions such as law, such as medicine. Our culture places a lot of value in what class you're in, what college education that you have, what pedigree that you have on your business card, your resume, what high school that you go to. We place a lot of value this on this, and there's a class system. And if you're honest with yourself, sin has corrupted it so much that in your heart of hearts, you sort of create a class system, and you look down on people who you do not think are in the same class as yourself. Honor is the standard of our behavior and how we treat one another in the same class, in the so- same socioeconomic strata. We treat people who we think on our lower class with a little bit of disdain and disrespect. It governs our behaviors. It connects us to the individual societies, connects to our families. It's why we say things don't bring shame to the family. I had a friend who once insightfully said, I can tell people who actually understand what gospel honor is by the way they treat a waitress or waiter when the waiter or waitress messes up their order at the restaurant. If you're angry and entitled and you're used to being served because you're successful and accomplished and you're used to actually being in a place where people serve you and your waiter messes the order up, it's going to come out. It's going to come out in anger, entitlement. But for those who actually understand that by virtue of the image of God, we are all honorable, it tells you and shows and dictates how you treat people who are different from you and not just in class, but also ethnicity and gender, cultures, accomplishments, that we can honor someone by virtue of being human made in the image of God. Honor is the standard of our behavior. We treat people in a lower class, quote unquote, differently than we like to be treated ourselves. We schmooze those who are in an upper echelon or higher class. It's essentially a life that we live based on transactions of honor. And Peter Berger goes on to say that honor is a more specific way of basically saying your identity, your sense of worth and value. Brothers and sisters, this is the point I'm trying to make. The reason you need honor is because it can make or break your life. The key is not whether you want honor, and the key is not to say that it's improper to ask for honor, the key here is to say everyone needs it. It's really good. Everyone wants it. It makes life flourish. Everyone innately needs to be valued and seen and precious. You need to be recognized. But the key is, where do you get it? Haman is imploding here. We can see this when we compare Haman and Mordecai. Haman tries to work for it. Mordecai receives honor. Honor consumes Haman And Mordecai seems to be relatively quiet and just goes on with life, and he's very passive. This chapter seems to bring forth a random string of events to show the contrast between Haman and Mordecai and how they relate to honor. The king can't sleep in verse 1. He has someone read a book of Chronicles, and in this book, The Official Records of the King, he finds out that Mordecai has saved his life, and he he finds out and discovers that Mordecai was never rewarded. And he asks... Who in the court could give me advice to say, how can we reward Mordecai for saving my life? And right at that moment, Haman walks in about to ask the king for honor and about to ask the king, I want to kill Mordecai. And the king asks Haman, how can a king honor a man in whom he delights? And Mordecai thinks to himself in verse 6, he must definitely be thinking of me. So then he says in verse 8, this is how I would do it, king. Let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse and the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And show him off in public. And at that very moment, the king said to this, do this to Mordecai. You parade him around in public yourself, Haman. And at the end of it all, we see that Haman just went back to the gates. And in verse 12, he runs back into his house, And he cries like a baby, mourning and covering his heads. Do you know why, friends? Do you know why Haman was devastated? It's not because he wanted honor. It's because he was asking it from the wrong place. Haman craved honor, but he never got it. And it's interesting because the author here details everything about Haman. We're told what he's doing, what he's saying, what he's even thinking. All his emotions and feelings of shame. Haman was completely and utterly devastated. Do you know why? Because he had an idolatry of honor and public recognition. He wanted it from the wrong place. He was essentially asking for honor from the wrong king. But Mordecai, there's not much mention of his reaction. He's the one the king delights to honor. He gets paraded around. He gets all the accolades. He gets all the recognition. there's nothing about what he thought or felt. There's nothing here, even if he felt honored or not. Do you know why? Here's the point that I'm trying to make. When you feel like you want to be honored and you're not getting it, it doesn't mean that you're not disappointed. But if you have it in the gospel, it will mean that you're never devastated. It means that in your relationships with family and work, when you feel disrespected because that's the expression of honor, Do you lash out in anger? Do you lash out in grieving? Do you go home like Haman and you tuck your tail and you cry and you're cowering? Like, why didn't I get honored? Why didn't I get ashamed? Or do you lash out in anger? All these emotions that tell you you have an idolatry of honor because you're asking it and trying to seek it from the wrong place. That's why honor can make or break your life. Because when people dishonor you, you can respond in love and patience and grace. When your spouse dishonors you, when your children dishonor you, when you don't get recognition at work or at church, in society, in the sports and accomplishments, you don't get what you think you deserve, it may disappoint, but it'll never devastate. you. you know why? Because you have your true sense of honor being the image of God recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. Haman's problem was that he was asking for this respect, this honor from the wrong place, from the wrong king. He wasn't just disappointed, he was devastated. He went home crying full of envy, full of shame, full of grief. But Mordecai, he's not even moved. He got all that Haman wanted, public recognition. And what did Mordecai do? He didn't go around bragging, his head didn't blow up. He didn't go around parading all his accomplishments and his accolades, all the recognition that he got. He doesn't do that. What did Mordecai do? This is the person you get a sense that he gets honor from the right place. What did he do when he got this public recognition? He just went back home. He went back to the gates. He went on with his life. He moved forward because he realized the basis of his dignity, respect, and honor is going to be in what Jesus Christ has done for him. Friends, a point of application before we turn the corner to the end of the message. For you yourself here this morning, For those of us worshiping at home, you may desperately want what Haman wants. And when you don't get it, you tuck your tail and you go crying in your room, or you lash out in anger because you feel entitled and didn't get what you thought you deserved. It's because you're looking for respect and honor in the wrong places. In your accomplishments, in who you think you are, your family background, your family tree, you're looking for it in the wrong place, and that's why you lash out in extreme, inordinate reactions because you have an idolatry of honor placed in the idols of your life. You have to place it in the right king. So how do you get it? Well, this is where we get it, friends. You get this honor from a king, but it's not a human one. Haman wanted it from a human king, and your human king may be your work, your children, your best friends, the opposite gender and dating, you were looking for it in a human king. Your accomplishments could also be the basis of why you think you have honor. Your business card busy exchange, is exchange, and it's essentially a transaction of honor. This is my business card. This is my position, my firm. These are the many acronyms that follow my name. What's your dignity? What's your honor? It's a transaction of honor. If you base your significance on this, then you're going to crumble and you're going to implode just like Haman did. But that's not, that's not the key. You've got to look at where Mordecai got it from. Haman wanted it from a human king, but we've been given honor from a divine king. God who is the king of the universe, God who has cherished you, he has loved you. And his grace says, you're precious and so special to me that I sent my only begotten son to die for you. Jesus, who had all the honor and the praise of the angels, just like Director Sujan has alluded to in Isaiah 6. And he came down into shame and took on human flesh, and he died a criminal's death. He went from honor in the infinite level to shame to an infinite level as he died upon the cross for a criminal's death to bring you and me who were born into dishonor so that we could stand in his place of righteousness and glory and honor. Where do you get honor from? Look at the cross of Jesus. God gives his only begotten son to sinners like you and me, to people who weren't special who weren't deserving, but to people who were undeserving, and then we were made special. That shows us how grace and love work in the providence and the purposes of God, how much he loved us and prized us and cherished us, how much he has seen us individually but also as a community and a body. Friends, the cross is a reminder of the love where heaven touches earth and says the Son of God gave his life for you because he loved you. And in Christ, we have the gospel promise that one day when Jesus returns, those of us who are with him will be honored. Where do I see this in the passage, friends? It's right there. The beauty of the passage is that it's full of reversals. Remember I began the message? What do I mean by this? The honor are shamed and the shame honored. There's a switching of places, a transaction of status. We see that there's a place where Haman is in a position of honor. Now he seeks to be in a position of shame. And Mordecai, who's in a position of shame, is placed in a position of honor. There's a transaction and a reversal. Mordecai shows us here a picture of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the gospel in the Old Testament and how Christ is in the palace. There's a reversal of Mordecai that shows us the reversal of Jesus that if we look at this, our identity with Christ shows a reversal in our lives. Mordecai was dressed in the king's robes paraded around in the kingdom in honor. Jesus was undressed, and he was paraded towards the cross in shame. Mordecai rode a royal horse, but Jesus walked with a heavy cross. Mordecai wore the crown of the king, but Jesus, he wore the crown of thorns. The crowds cheered for Mordecai because the king honored him. The crowds mocked and spat on Jesus with a sign that said, sarcastically, he's the king of the Jews. The reversal between Haman and Mordecai, between honor to shame and shame to honor, is the picture of the reversal of our lives from death to life, from shame in our sin to honor in Christ's righteousness. That's why this passage is full of grace. The dominant actor in Esther chapter 6 is in fact not Mordecai, and it's not Haman, It's not Esther, it's not King Ahasuerus. The dominant actor is actually God. Because Esther, the rising star, is not even present here. And if you look at all the chain of events, it happens in the everyday matters of providence and conversations. Beginning with verse 1, On that night, the king could not sleep. An everyday occurrence shows us that in providence, God is the one who's working. That's why the commentator Karen Job says in the book of Esther, whenever God is conspicuously absent, he is most omnipotently present. This is what led to the great reversal for Haman and Mordecai, this random event is to show that behind the scenes, God is ultimately at work. Esther is not in Esther chapter 6. Mordecai is very passive. King Hasuerus is not on the scene. Haman fumbles around and he's cast onto the side. They're all put to the side to show that behind in the silence, God is brought into the central character in his providence, and he shows us that he sent his son Jesus in this great reversal of death to life. In fact, in what they call the Septuagint of this one verse, it says this in verse 1. The Lord took sleep from the king that night. God is the one who's in control. God in his providence works for your good and for mine. To reverse our stories in this great reversal of Jesus Christ. He flips worldly honor upside down. It's not about power, friends. It's not about prestige. It's not about accomplishments. Those things are really good, but those will not be the basis of your life. It's about character. It's about a dignity and honor that comes in this antithetical, countercultural perspective of how gospel shows us the king in the universe died a criminal death for you and me. And when that saturates and when that hits our heart and we find our sense of purpose and identity in the honor of Jesus Christ for us and that we will be one day lifted up and glorified and honored because of Jesus' work, then and only then will your life flourish Then and only then will we have relationships of love and truth, and your family and your work and society will begin to harmonize because you find your honor in the gospel of Jesus. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we don't just see Jesus in the New Testament, but also the old because it is your word. And we see Christ in the palace in this great reversal of the stories of Haman and Mordecai. And Lord, in our heart of hearts, Lord, many of us in our own experiences and own needs certainly want to be seen and be valued and precious and recognized. But help us to realize we have gotten that already as we are seen by a great king of the universe. And we are loved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that empowers us to honor and to love others more than ourselves. We thank you so much and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.